Welcome to How We Raised It, the extraordinary stories of mega gifts and multi-million dollar philanthropic campaigns from the Australian arts leaders who delivered them. I'm your host, Melissa Smith, and this series is commissioned by Creative Partnerships Australia and Noble Ambition. On today's episode, we have Libby Christie, Executive Director of the Australian Ballet. Libby has been with the Australian Ballet as Executive Director since 2013. She's also Executive Counselor, Live Performance Australia, Chair of State Orchestra of Victoria, and a non-executive director of Northrop Consulting Engineering. Prior to this, she was acting CEO of the Australian Council for the Arts. And she was the managing director of Sydney Symphony from 2003 to 2009. You can't leave it to someone else to do. Loyal donors, sophisticated board engagement, integrated marketing and philanthropy systems, endowments, programs and capital, the business of philanthropy that raised the roof and more. Physios in cupboards, dancers at dinners and unwavering confidence. This is the story of the Australian Ballet's $15 million Raising the Roof campaign. Well, thank you very much, Libby, for joining us here today. I'm delighted that you're available to join us and share with these extraordinary stories, the Australian Ballet. But I wonder if we could start really sort of at the beginning. You grew up in Sydney and have dedicated much of your career to the arts. But tell me about your earliest memory of feeling deeply connected to the arts when you were young. Thanks, Melissa. And it's wonderful to be here. I did grow up in Sydney. I don't have an arts background. In fact, the majority of my long career has not been in the arts, but for the last 15 years, I have really had the great pleasure and privilege of working in the arts in Australia. I think probably my earliest experience of the arts that was significant was the school that I went to really featured and valued music. And not only did we learn music and learn about music, but we actually got to perform as well, probably not very well in my case, but uh, singing and performing was encouraged. And that was great. And that gave me great insight into just how far you could go uh, with the arts. I remember for me, it was visual arts. And I just loved it at school was my favorite topic. And from that just fuels a passion. Tell me a little bit about your time in the corporate sector. You had a, a significant career in that space. And then you took quite a significant shift, taking the role of managing director at Sydney Symphony. What did you hope to find in making that big shift from corporate into the arts? Well, Melissa, I'd love to say that it was carefully planned as part of a lengthy career strategy. (laughs) My career has more been about a series of happy accidents, I think. I had been working for a US-based multinational before I joined the Sydney Symphony. And as a result of a whole lot of restructuring and changes to that organisation, I decided that I needed a break and a change. And what I was really looking for was an opportunity to connect through to where I lived and to my community. I'd always been a subscriber to the Sydney Symphony. I, re- As I said, I started at school subscribing to the Sydney Symphony. I loved it. I was introduced to the chair of the Sydney Symphony. One thing led to another. I was privileged to be offered the role of managing director of the Sydney Symphony, and so I took it. But I was well aware of what I didn't know. I can remember sitting in the auditorium, or the concert hall, I should say, of the Sydney Opera House for a very full and popular concert 
looking at 100 musicians performing on stage and more than 2,000 people sitting around me in the theatre, in the concert hall, thinking, my God, what if I do this well? There are a lot of people, a lot of stakeholders here who love this orchestra, as I do. I want to be able to do a good job of leadership here. I've got to go into it being aware of what I don't know. So you must have had a very accelerated entry to arts management leading this extraordinary company. What was your priority when you first started at the symphony? I think my priority was to make sure that everybody understood and agreed about what success was. So it was really a wonderful experience of creating a new strategic plan, bringing everybody together in support of that and having everybody understand just what their role was in making sure that the company maintained what was a very long history of great success and continuing that into the future. Well, philanthropy must have been a critical part of that success and enabling that vision, that shared vision. How would you describe the character of philanthropy at the symphony and the role leadership played in that? Uh, Well, philanthropy was important at the Sydney Symphony and of growing importance. I think I'm talking about, you know, 15, 16 years ago now. I don't think there was as broad an understanding of the significance of philanthropy then as there has been over that time. It's grown. But we had some wonderful supporters in the Sydney Symphony. I remember this wonderful supporter of the Sydney Symphony who told me that she had included a bequest to the orchestra in her will. But not long afterwards, she got back in contact and said, you know, I've made this bequest to the orchestra. I want the orchestra to use the bequest to acquire some new instruments for some of the younger players. I've decided that I don't want to wait for you to have the benefit of that. I want to actually see how it works. I want to see the benefit that my gift will create. So instead of putting it into my will, I'm going to give you the money now. And it was wonderful to have her alongside us as we were able to use her gift to acquire those instruments. And she was able to see them, talk to the musicians about the impact it had on their performances and their careers to have these wonderful new instruments. What strikes me having worked in this space for some time is philanthropy is just truly inspiring and humbling. And it's those experiences that are sort of a catalyst to continue to to keep going. I wanted to focus now on your role as executive director of the ballet. Now, the culture and business of philanthropy at the Australian Ballet is legendary. It boasts some of Australia's most wealthy and generous donors. And the team is led by the great Kenneth Watkins, who has been at the ballet for almost 30 years and even written a book on the subject. So I'm curious about what struck you most about philanthropy when you joined the ballet as executive director in 2013. What was that difference between observing it from the outside of the company to being at the centre of the ballet? What does the legend look like and feel like and sound like on a day-to-day basis? It's a very interesting question because you're right. Kenneth Watkins, who is just an extraordinary member of the Australian Ballet and also really understands philanthropy, is a legend. And I can remember saying to him when I joined the Australian Ballet, oh, Kenneth, you're a legend. I'll come back to Kenneth in a minute because he's created amazing value for the Australian Ballet through his work. But what struck me first and foremost once I joined the company was it wasn't Kenneth, it was the whole company. Everybody in the company understood philanthropy. Our artistic director, David McAllister, the dancers who 
each year take turns in being philanthropy ambassadors, board members who all understood philanthropy and our foundation board is a subcommittee of our main board of directors. Everybody in the company worked to support the philanthropy program and understood the value of our philanthropy community. Australian Ballet calls itself a family and it sounds like it might be a bit trite, but it's not. The whole of the Australian Ballet and the people who are close to the Australian Ballet and support it very much operate like a family. They care for each other and they all share a common sense of purpose that the Australian Ballet should be thriving and prospering, not just today, but into the future. In 2013, when you joined the ballet, it was already a strong revenue through philanthropy. I think in 2012, it was about 7.3 million. And by 2014, when you were there, it was 9.3 million to give some of our listeners the context of just how much year on year philanthropy was making a contribution to the ballet. What did you see in terms of your role as executive director? And what were your priorities when you began? I suppose the first thing I wanted to understand was how philanthropy worked for the Australian Ballet to support what we were doing today, but also for the future. Because as you say, the history of philanthropy at the Australian Ballet goes back about 30 years. And once Kenneth and I sat down together and had a look at the philanthropic income, we can see it's coming from a number of areas. I suppose the most interesting area in many respects are the bequests that the Australian Ballet is now receiving as a result of having a planned giving program for 30 years. So you never know when bequests are going to come in. You can't guarantee they're going to come in. In many cases, it's sad when you actually receive the bequest, but it's wonderful to think that people today and 30 years ago were thinking about the company's future and making bequests in their wills. So that's the first thing I thought about. Second thing was We have an annual giving program at the Australian Ballet where we encourage people to donate in support of the annual activities of the company and that income goes straight into our accounts for the year and helps us offset salaries, it helps us offset buying ballet shoes, it helps us offset a whole lot of purposes that people are happy to donate to help the company offset its running costs. But on top of that, we have a major gifts program and Kenneth Watkins is particularly active in that where we go out and talk to our philanthropic community about the plans for the company for the future and we develop campaigns and fundraise for campaigns for those specific activities. As the executive director, most importantly, it's said that I should lead some work in the organisation to identify the major projects that were going to help the company thrive and prosper over the next few years that will become the basis of campaigns for major gifts. The final thing that I wanted to work on with our philanthropy team was to develop a discipline across all of the company that made it possible for us to keep and invest our philanthropic income for the future. I could see the more we grew our capital preserve gifts, the more income we'd generate from them which would gradually become a very valuable annual income stream that would go back into helping us offset some of our operating costs. So Kenneth and I decided that we would embark on a program to really build an invested corpus of capital protected funds whenever we had the opportunity. So we worked on those programs together. 
That's extraordinary. It is so much the aspiration of so many arts companies and charities more broadly to build up an endowment structure and endowed funds to provide security and stability going forward, certainly in times like this where we're currently experiencing with COVID. One of the challenges, though, that they often experience is, is describing that to donors and having them engage with it. But you have such a family of donors that they must have responded, no doubt, very well to these types of structures. Was that your experience? Yes, it is. We work very hard to make sure that the people who are supporters of the Australian Ballet are inside the family with us and they can see how the company operates. They interact with the dancers. They come behind the scenes in every sense to understand how we work and what's involved in creating and putting on ballet. And we're as helped in doing that by the generosity of the dancers with their time and with their capacity to make friends with our broader community. One of the things that was very important to me early on, and this is something that we've done more recently in the last five or six years, is to say to all of the people in our organisation who have a customer-facing role, it's important that you know the customer and that we interact with our customers, to use a sort of corporate expression, as if they were donors, whether they are or not. So we've done a lot of work segmenting our database based on the behaviours of our customers, the, the audience members. And we know, for example, that there are some of our patrons who might only occasionally come to see the ballet. They might be very busy people. They might live partly overseas. So they're not subscribers. They don't buy tickets very often, but they're generous donors. So when they do buy a ticket, I want our customer service people to know that they're VIPs and to look after them and to make sure they get appropriate VIP treatment. So we've put a lot of time and effort into working with, uh, in work led by our marketing department to actually integrate all of the customer data we've got between philanthropy, sponsorships, and the marketing people. And I think that's so important because if we operated separately, the marketing people would recognise a customer based on the number of tickets they sold. The philanthropy people are only recognising philanthropists based on their donations. And that doesn't make sense because nobody's going to donate to the Australian Ballet if they don't love ballet and come and see us even occasionally. They've got to actually be engaging with us as an art form. But on the other hand, our marketing people have to understand that from somebody buying a ticket one day, in a couple of years' time, that person could be making a notified bequest to the Australian Ballet. So they have to see a life cycle of customer value and customer engagement. So having those two teams work particularly closely together has been really valuable. I think that's such a wonderful example and a tangible demonstration of a strong culture of philanthropy. You know, when we talk about the legend of philanthropy at the Australian Ballet, this is very tangibly demonstrated in that example of two different teams within an organization and the sophistication of systems and processes and thinking behind that. If I may, I'd like to bring us to a particular campaign to focus on now, which was the Primrose Potter Australian Ballet Centre Capital Campaign. And at the time, it was uh, an $8 million gift from the Ian Potter Foundation in 2010 that was one of the largest at the time for performing arts. Before we get into how that money was raised and how you achieved its success, I'm just curious if you could tell me a little bit about why this campaign was needed. Yes, well, we called it the Raising the Roof campaign, actually, <laughs> um, because that's exactly what we wanted to do, was raise the roof. 
The Australian Ballet is very fortunate to own the building that is our headquarters in Melbourne on South Bank. And the building was opened in 1988, thanks to investment the company made in the land and a philanthropic campaign to raise the money to build the building, which in 1988 was a state-of-the-art ballet centre. But there hadn't been a lot of work done on it since 1988, and it was probably fair to say that in spite of the fact we have wonderful ballet studios, the rest of the facilities in the building that the Australian Ballet was using were not up to speed, and in particular our medical facilities. In 1988 we didn't have a physiotherapist. Now we have a big physiotherapy team with myotherapists and body conditioning experts, uh, and they were literally working out of cupboards before we started our Raising the Roof campaign. (laughs) So it was a very important campaign to us, and we were able to take advantage. A tenant who'd been operating and renting the top floor of our building, and when that tenant moved out, we realised we had the opportunity to use that area to create facilities for the company, but we'd have to raise the roof. So... (laughs) (laughs) That's all. (laughs) Ballet studios and ballet facilities don't work unless you can have a very high ceiling so that people can jump and lift and all of those sorts of things. Of course. So that's what we did. And, in fact, you know, you referenced the In Potter Foundation gift in 2010. That was a gift for facilities and some other purposes, which had been partly used and there were some funds left from that original gift. But we also started fundraising to achieve the rest of the funds that we needed for that. We were funded by the federal government by a million dollars, for a million dollars for that campaign, but the rest of the money was either given as a result of that original Ian Potter Foundation gift. We got some more funding from the Ian Potter Foundation and then we went out to our philanthropic community to get behind the campaign. And talk me through that in a bit more detail because in a previous conversation we had, you told me... As the campaign was being announced, it was very important for yourself, David McAllister, the artistic director, and your chair, Craig Dunn, to be amongst the very first donors publicly supporting this campaign. Why was that the case? Look, Melissa, I just think it was because we felt so strongly that this was the right thing to do for the company and the right thing to do for the future of the Australian Ballet. There are many arts organisations in Australia that are fortunate to have facilities that have been provided by governments. And as government assets, they're regularly upgraded. The Australian Ballet has both been fortunate to have been able to fund our own facilities, but it's almost a disadvantage when it comes to maintaining them and upgrading them. So that takes obviously money, but it's incredibly important. And with dancers who are elite athletes, I can't tell you how important it is that they work in state-of-the-art premises. And I might have mentioned this to you, that not long after I joined the company, I was fortunate to go to the UK and visit the Royal Ballet, Ballet Rambert, Birmingham Royal Ballet. And the one thing that I noticed was that their facilities had been constantly upgraded and particularly their facilities for dancers like medical facilities and rehab facilities were so much better than ours. And I came back thinking, well, I'm not an artist and I'm not an artistic director. There's not much I can do about teaching ballet, but there's certainly something I can do for this company to make sure we have the best facilities that we can afford. And so I was so well supported by the board, the chairman, as I said to you, who was one of our earliest donors, and David McAllister. And David and I have always believed if we believe something's right for the company, we should demonstrate that support 
by showing that we can take a lead and donate in support of the projects that we that we're undertaking. That's just wonderful leadership, not just at board level, but at executive level. And look, I must say the rest of our board have been very generous in supporting that project. Our board is a governance board. It's not one of those American style give, get or get off boards. But when we're doing something really important for the company, we all have the same approach, which is we must demonstrate that by actually leading by example, why this is important. I'll come back to a question about the board in, in, a, in a moment, but if I may, I understand there was about $6 million raised for this campaign from approximately 43 or so donors, plus, of course, the federal government. How did you go about identifying those donors? Were many of them existing or all of them existing donors to the Australian Ballet? Many of them were existing, even if somebody's a very small donor for the Australian Ballet. We know and support them and recognise them. But there were quite a few new donors you know, it, it's always wonderful to see just how generous people who know us well are prepared to be again and again. But in this campaign, because it was there in, in your face, essentially, in Melbourne on South Bank, we could take people through and show them. It was something that people just understood. They got, they were happy to support. And so we had some extraordinary new donors who got behind that campaign as well. Do you remember in terms of when the pledges get made and you knew that you actually had raised the full amount, do you remember where you were or how you found out? I don't actually. I think we had such confidence that we were going to get there. It wasn't like we had one of those big thermometers and we were sort of adding up the money. We just kept working on it. We knew we would get there. That's fascinating because for some other organisations, there are many, many moments usually early hours of the morning, that the, the heads wake up and are quite nervous about whether they actually will. In hindsight, it, of course, was always going to happen. There was this confidence always for this campaign within the ballet that it would be successful? Yes, we really believed in it. And we did some research beforehand of course, yeah. with our philanthropic community about whether people thought it was a good idea. We didn't ask them whether they were specifically going to donate, but we did ask whether people felt it was a worthy thing for the Australian Ballet to, to try to achieve. I personally believe that if we can achieve in a major campaign like that, a demonstration of support, not just from the board and the company, but also from government, even if a government contribution is, in this case, a million dollars out of 13, I think that demonstrates to everybody that we're speaking to that we've got a really broad 360-degree stakeholder support. It gives people confidence to get behind the project. Absolutely. I mean, this campaign is, as you said before, but one of, of the Australian Ballet's sort of fundraising priorities or, or big projects that you have been rolling out with your board and executive directors. The Ballet offers quite a sophisticated range of, of offerings according to their interest levels, including the endowment, which you spoke about, programs, and of course, capital. I'm interested in your experience. Was capital easier to raise than some of your other programs? I don't think so, no. I think people like a project, however, that makes sense when positioned in the overall strategic direction of the company. We've always had made an effort to publish our five-year strategic plans. Projects like raising the roof and upgrading our facilities was in our strategic plan. We're raising funds, money at the moment, for a big new production um, that we'll bring to the stage in 2023. That's also part of our strategic plan. We're able to articulate where the company's going 
and what's going to make a difference for the company and why well before we actually start raising money. And I think people respond well to that. They, If they're supporters of the company in the broader sense, they can get behind the projects that make mean the most to them. I think what you just demonstrate then is the sophistication of planning and strategy and execution the ballet has where philanthropy is woven throughout. I want to ask a question with regards to the board that leadership in philanthropy and demonstration of of actual giving is very important, as you spoke about before at the beginning of the campaign. What does that look like in terms of how the board engages with philanthropy in terms of its planning and their own role? Uh, We're very fortunate that our board absolutely understands the significance of philanthropy for the Australian Ballet, both through the history but also for our future. And if I could use a sort of corporate expression for a minute, our business model assumes that we will generate the majority of our income each year from selling tickets. That's our own, I guess, commercial activity, that we will have some funding from government, which is about 10% of our income, that we'll have some funding from our corporate partners, that's our sponsors. But after box office income, the board understands that philanthropy is our second largest source of income. And so the board understands that it's important to prioritise that in their thinking and the work that they do to support the company. So one of our board members is the chair of our foundation board, which is actually a subcommittee of the main board. It's not a separate company Mm. like some organisations have. It's a subcommittee of the main board. But the chair of our foundation board appoints the members or recommends the appointment of the members of the foundation board. And they are wonderful people who are willing to both be personally generous to the company and to work to generate income. They also regularly meet with our philanthropy team and identify these projects and activities that they will pursue to actually help us support the next campaign coming up. I know The Philanthropy Board is particularly interested in supporting our medical program and they've done some great work there to help us. It takes a community to do this and the people who are on our foundation board are part of that community. We have something we call an ambassadors program, which is for younger people who are interested in the Australian ballet and may not be wanting to spend too much time on Australian ballet activities or donate large sums of money, but they're happy to help. And we provide opportunities for them to donate and support us as well. And by having the ambassadors program, we're sort of creating the foundation board members and the philanthropists of the future. So we're thinking of pipelines of support from the Australian Ballet in every sense, whether it's from audience members or people who are wanting to put a toe in the water and be part of our philanthropy program in a small way. I think that's another great example of just the sophistication of thinking of who your advocates are, not just for Mm. now, but for the longer term. I asked Lizanne this, Lizanne McGregor, the director of the Museum of Contemporary Art, this question about the impact of the $15 million gift the Morton family gift had on Australian arts philanthropy at the time. And I'd like to pose a similar question to you. What do you think the impact of the Australian Ballet's philanthropy and all its strengths and success has been for arts philanthropy more broadly in Australia? Well, I hope that it gives everybody, whether they're philanthropically inclined or a performing arts company like ours, a model that they can have a look at and see the impact of philanthropy and have confidence that it's something that is worth doing. I mean, that's not expressed very well, but if you're a philanthropist and you can actually see the impact of 
donating in support of a campaign like our Raise the Roof campaign. You walk past the Australian Ballet today, you can see the raised roof. You can see the dancers in there working out in the gym and in the Pilates studio and in the treatment rooms. And you can actually see the names of the people who made very significant gifts on those rooms and on the building in the case of the Primrose Potter Australian Ballet Centre. It's a physical demonstration that philanthropy works. That example uh, and people leading by example is really inspirational. It really is. It must also be personally very satisfying for you to walk past it as well and see that success. Absolutely. But also to know that the people whose names are on the building and the rooms are coming in regularly and that the dancers are ringing them to thank them and that, you know, we have this wonderful family of people who all enjoy each other and enjoy what and are proud of what the Australian Ballet is achieving. It's fantastic. It really is. Tell me, what advice would you give to other arts leaders, not all of them have the wealth of donors or the sophistication of strategy and experience of their leadership in this space. But what advice would you give to arts leaders in securing mega gifts or multi-million dollar campaigns in the future? I'd say that you can't leave it to somebody else to do. You might have a wonderful fundraiser like I do in Kenneth Watkins. And I might say, when I first met Kenneth and said, oh, Kenneth, you're a legend. And he had me over for dinner. And I was new to Melbourne. I really appreciated that. And I said, Kenneth, it's really, I really appreciate this. I'll have you back to my place uh, just as soon as I unpack my boxes. And he said, Libby, I'd really rather you made a donation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kenneth. <laughs> and I thought, okay. <laughs> so I thought, right, you've got to lead by example. You've got to get involved in this. You can't leave it to somebody else. <laughs> oh, that's just wonderful. That is just wonderful. I recently read David McAllister's autobiography, Soar, Life Freed by Dance. And what struck me, I think it was one of the final pages about his next stage as he was stepping down as artistic director of the Australian Ballet, as he looked forward to seeing his friends because he hadn't seen them very much. He'd seen the donors of the Australian Ballet far more than his friends. What advice would you give about the importance of building relationship with your donors? Because that sounds so fundamental to the experience and the success of the Australian Ballet. It is absolutely fundamental. And, you know, I'm sure David has lots of friends who are not part of the Australian ballet world, but I'm sure he'd also say he's made so many friends as a result of this. We have a wonderful group of supporters. We call them Les Etoiles. If you are in the ballet world, you'll know that in Paris Opera Ballet, Les Etoiles is one of their top dancers. We have a Les Etoiles program for our top donors. And these are people who donate in support of our principal dancers. And every year we have a Les Etoiles dinner in one in Sydney and one in Melbourne, where the principal dancers host the donors who are there toile to dinner. And the principal dancers sit amongst all the donors and there are there, you know, basically you'd have everyone sitting side by side. It's quite intimate. And it's often hard to actually finish those dinners because the dancers and the patrons sit there talking long into the night about each other's lives. The patrons are fascinated by the dancers, who they are, where they've been, what they're doing and where they want to be next. And the dancers are fascinated by the lives that we all lead, which are so different from their lives and want to know how we got on and where we, what we'd advise them to do next. So they're very genuine friendships developed between the dancers and the artists and the company and the patrons who are supporting them. 
that inside is lovely. You're lifting the curtain on what these donor relationships are like in the most genuine, authentic way. Thank you so very, very much for your time today, Libby. And thank you for your extraordinary leadership in arts, fundraising and philanthropy. It has been such a wonderful story to tell. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Melissa. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you. What a wonderful story from Libby, Christy and the Australian Ballet. My three key learnings from this story are, one, the Australian Ballet's success is both in its culture of philanthropy and the business of philanthropy. Now, the ballet and its community are referred to as a family. And this sense of family is echoed throughout the ballet's communications, events, and engagements. This genuine community and sense of family can only be sustained when philanthropy is the collective responsibility of the organization. Two, not only culture, but the business of philanthropy and fundraising at the ballet is highly strategic and successful. And this is because it's supported by really effective systems and business operations across the company. These structures, systems, and processes that sit behind the scenes provide the efficiencies and the professionalism that supports the external-facing culture of philanthropy. And third, to be successful in fundraising, you have to ask. Even as you're welcoming your new boss for dinner in your own home, no opportunity is lost in demonstrating the importance of giving and asking. My recommendations to apply in your own organization are one, for a culture of philanthropy to be sustainable, it must be the whole organizational's responsibility. Two, the business of fundraising, structure, systems, and processes are essential to support both revenue generation and embedding a culture of philanthropy. And three, to be successful, you have to have the courage to ask a lot. Thank you for listening to How We Raised It. Thanks for listening to How We Raised It. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leaving a review helps others find the podcast. For more resources and arts philanthropy know-how, head to creativepartnerships.gov.au. For more on fundraising leadership, go to nobleambition.com.au.